If you have been a part of our denomination any length of time, you probably heard of Lottie Moon and what an inspiration her life is and the sacrifices she made, literally dying of starvation from all the food that she had given those in China that she was ministering to and wasn't able to make it back home to America, but certainly made it home to heaven in light of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So she's a great inspiration to us all. And as we think about Go Missions here at Marbley, we realize that in this month, the mission emphasis here at Marbley, that we fo focus first of all on Matthew 24 and Jesus teaching about the signs of his coming and making it very clear that he is not coming until the church completes it, its mission of taking the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth. And then last week, as Paul spoke to you from Acts 1-8, he was focusing on national missions and the importance of taking the gospel to people here in the United States and North America. Today at Marbley, you have a local missions emphasis. You heard Andrea's story of how God led her in a very special ministry here in Longview. And you have an opportunity this afternoon to go out with the love of Christ in hopes that you have the opportunity to share the ultimate love, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ. As we continue this focus, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. If you're new to Bible study, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you come to the sequel to the Gospel of Luke that Dr. Luke wrote. And the sequel is the book of Acts that deals with the body of Christ number two. The Gospel of Luke deals with the body of Christ number one, Jesus, and the sequel to Luke is Acts that deals with the body of Christ number two, the church. And here today we see the very first mission trip sent out from a local church in all of history. And amazingly on that mission trip was a former religious terrorist that was radically transformed by Jesus and became one of the first missionaries. So I ask you to turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts and we're going to read verses 1 through 3, but we'll be studying verses 1 through 12 as we look at that very first mission trip. So in honor of God, let's all stand now for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 13. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. Father, as we stand before you, our Creator, the Lord of all the universe, we pray that you will speak to us today, that you will help us to understand the missionary calling, the role of the individual and the local church. And Father, we pray by the power of you, the Holy Spirit, you will convict our hearts of our role, what we're to give, how we're to pray, where we're to go. Are we willing to be sent? Will this church be a sending church? Oh Lord, may you convict us today as we study your word. And we do this, Father, in honor and glory of Jesus. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
When 9-11 occurred, Americans were confronted like never before with the reality of religious terrorists. And what was so dumbfounding and shocking to Americans is all those religious terrorists who flew those jets into those buildings really believed that what they were doing was pleasing God. They really believed they were doing the work of God. Now that just absolutely blows our mind. It's hard for us to grasp. But understand this, religious terrorism is not new. And you go back 2,000 years and you will find that there was a religious terrorist, a Jewish religious terrorist, who was hell-bent on destroying his fellow Jewish people that were followers of Jesus and what he saw was a heresy to traditional Judaism. And Saul, that religious terrorist, was so convinced that he was helping God out that he went to the religious leaders to get permission to go to Damascus, Syria, and not only to persecute and imprison, but in some cases kill his fellow Jews who were followers of what he saw was a heretic by the name of Jesus. In other words, the religious terrorists on 9-11 and this religious terrorist by the name of Saul both felt they were doing what was pleasing to God. And what is so amazing is that when Paul had that encounter with the living, risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, it was one of the most radical conversions in all the history of the church. And what was so amazing, can you put yourself in the shoes of Saul? He really believed with zealous passion he was doing good for God. And Jesus confronted him to help him realize that his whole life and mission and purpose had been evil and wrong. Now, you're talking about a dramatic change. Imagine what he went through in that conversion. And yet today, what we see is that in the very first mission trip in the history of the church, this former religious terrorist was one of the men that was sent out. Now let's look, beginning in verse 1, at this amazing story of the first mission trip. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. A little bit about Antioch. Antioch was believed to be the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. First you had Rome, then you had Alexandria, Egypt, and then you had either Antioch or Ephesus. One of those cities was the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a very important city. It would be found today in far northwestern Syria or far uh, southwestern Turkey. And Antioch was a place where the church was exploding in growth, especially with Gentile Christians. And the reason Barnabas, a leader from the mother church in Jerusalem, was sent by that church to Antioch was the Jewish followers of Jesus in the mother church in Jerusalem wondered if the church at Antioch was compromising on the gospel and the word of God. So they sent one of their trusted leaders, Barnabas, go check out what's going on up there. See if they're being true to the faith. Barnabas got there. He was thrilled to see all these Gentiles that were coming to Christ and following him. 
And interestingly enough, it was at Antioch that the church and its followers were first called Christians. Up until then, they were called followers of the way. Why? Because this man, Jesus, that we know to be the God-man, said that he was the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. It was a radical statement in the first century. It is an incredibly countercultural and radical statement in the 21st century. And out of that time, we see these followers of Jesus now being called Christian. It's also interesting that the church was so big and so growing that it was a multi-staff church. They had five on the ministerial staff. Look at this. Barnabas. Now, that's not really his name, folks. His name was Joseph. But he came to be known as Barnabas by his nickname because it described who he was, the son of encouragement, and how we love those folks with the gift of encouragement. The church needs more of them. Barnabas came known by his nickname, Barnabas, because that described who he was. And when a person has the gift of encouragement, it's not somebody who tries to make you feel better in a tough situation, but when a person has the gift of encouragement, you feel better about yourself every time you're around them. That's the gift of encouragement. That was Barnabas. He was the key leader. But look at who else. Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. Now, you've got Barnabas, who came from the mother church in Jerusalem, and then you see these two men that are from North Africa that are also part of the leadership of the church. But not only that, then there was Manaean. Now, Manaean grew up in the house of Herod the Tetrarch. In other words, he grew up in the household of these famous Herods who were the kings of the Jews, decadent men. Don't you know Manaean had some incredible tales to tell about his growing up years in that household. And then there was Saul, the fifth leader of the church. Now, when Saul came to Christ, he was such a known religious terrorist that the followers of Christ were suspicious of his motives. They thought he might have been a plant there to turn more of them in because after all, he wanted to persecute and kill them and destroy the church before he got out of the starting gates. They were suspicious. Who was the guy who reached out to Saul? It was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who believed that Saul had really had a life transformation in Christ. And he went to Tarsus and brought Saul back to Antioch so that he could begin to disciple these believers. And he knew that Saul had a special calling to go to Gentiles to lead them to Christ. So here were all these Gentile Christians coming to Christ, and he thought Saul would be the perfect guy. So you got five on the church staff. Now, I know a lot of folks are real critical about the mega church and large churches, but all through Acts, the very first day, it started with 3,000 folks. And now you got this church at Antioch a multi-staff church there. You've got these growing dynamic churches that are happening there. But we read on. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, what is being described in verse 2 is kind of like what we would call a solemn assembly. When the church calls for a time of corporate prayer and fasting. Now, Marvel had 21 days a while back of prayer for your future for this church Praying for God's man in the future will be your pastor. Praying for your pastor search committee. And in our denomination, we understand special call prayer meetings, but we're not real good at understanding special call times of fasting. That's not a real strength within our denomination. Why are we called to fast? Jesus expects us to fast. He says, when you fast, because he's expecting us to fast. It's giving up food or giving up partial foods for a period of time to focus on praying and seeking God's will. And every time you get hungry when you're going through a fast is a reminder by the Holy Spirit to pray, to focus on prayer. That's the purpose of it. 
So here we see a time of corporate prayer and fasting in the church of Antioch. They're seeking God's will about how they can better take the gospel to the whole wide world. That's the mission of the church. And they're led during that time to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed and they laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, everyone, are you listening? Are you listening? The calling to missions, the calling to be sent out, whether it's local here in Longview, whether it's national here in the United States and North America, whether it's international to a remote part of the earth, the calling is an individual calling, but it always has corporate ramifications. And even though individualistic Americans feel this calling sometime in the church or in their walk with Christ that they're called to missions, and you ask them, well, what about your local church? What does your local church say? What do the spiritual leaders of your local church say? They oh, I don't need that. I've got the calling of God. That is wrong. All through scripture, it is an individual calling, but the local church affirms and does the sending. And if the local church doesn't affirm and do the sending, then perhaps you need to re-examine if God is really calling you. Because we see that here. The local church is leading the way and seeking those who will be sent out. And they lay hands on Saul and Barnabas. Think about it. They're giving up two of their finest leaders, two out of five of their finest leaders. They're sending them out. J.D. Greer, who's the president of our convention, has written an outstanding book, Gaining by Losing. And the title is all about how difficult it is for the pastor when the church begins to be a sending church and sending people out to plant new churches, sending people out to go on the mission field. And sometimes they're the sharpest leaders in the church. That's hard for a pastor. But you're gaining for the kingdom as you're losing individual members of your church. And the church at Antioch had that spirit. They're sending out two out of five, two-fifths of the key leaders of that church. Back in 1992, when I was pastoring, I've been pastoring at Johnson Ferry there in Atlanta for about 10 years. I came to our student pastor and I, I said, Ricky, I know God is blessing you and leading our student ministry, but I'd like to ask you to just get away for a few days of prayer and fasting and seek God's will about what he wants you to do in leading our student ministry in a way that is unique to Johnson Ferry. Not just doing what other churches are doing in student ministries in traditional ways, but what is God leading us to do? And he did. He came back. He said, Brian, I believe that what God's calling me to do is to challenge our high school students to give up their spring break going to the beach. Now, I know a lot of you think that's no sacrifice, but for those high school students, that's a big sacrifice, big sacrifice. And I'm going to challenge those high school students to go through eight weeks of discipleship training, about two hours every Sunday night, and to challenge them to go to Mexico, right south of the border, and build housing for the poorest of the poor, just one-room houses, and go door-to-door sharing the good news of Christ. I said, go for it. And on that first mission trip, we had about 30 students and adults go. But it was so radically transforming in their walk with Jesus Christ that here's what began to happen in our church. More and more students, more and more adults saw what was happening in the lives of those who were going and being sent out that more and more began to go. And year after year, we began to see an increase of more and more going. And before COVID hit in 2020, Johnson Ferry was averaging about 2,000 adults and teenagers going on about 70 to 80 mission trips all around the globe every single year. And it wasn't that we were pleading with those people for all these different trips. It was just a movement of God as people were sensing the leading of the Lord and being sent out. 
You know, that kind of spirit can happen here. You're already a mission-minded church. You're a mission-minded congregation. You have that Great Commission spirit already here. You're already a church that supports church plants and sending people out locally and nationally and globally. But imagine getting to the point where almost every Sunday in your church you're commissioning a team to go somewhere in the world to share the gospel. That does something for the local church. It can happen here. The church was doing the sending to affirm those who are sent. Well, where do they go? Verse 4. So by being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. What's Seleucia? Seleucia was the port city of Antioch. It's about 12 to 14 miles from the Mediterranean coast. So they made this trip about 12, 14 miles to the port of Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. In other words, they sailed west to the island of Cyprus there in the Mediterranean Sea. Where'd they go at Cyprus? When they reached Cyprus, they went to Salamis. What's Salamis? It was the first major city on the eastern side of Cyprus, and that's where they began to preach. And they began to proclaim the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Now, understand this about Saul. Saul was a very aristocratic Jew. I mean, he was a, he was a very aristocratic Jew. He was a traditional Jew. He was radically converted on the road to Damascus. But even though he knew that God's ministry for him was primarily to focus on the Gentiles, he never forget, forgot that Jesus was clear. He came first for his fellow Jews. And wherever Saul would go to new towns, he would go first to the synagogue to give them the first opportunity to come to Christ by hearing the gospel. And understand this, a lot of American Christians are exact opposite. The last person you would ever share your faith with is a, is a Jewish friend. That should be the most important person you share your faith with because they are so loved and chosen by God and need to know that special calling and gift of God and salvation in Jesus. So Saul did that. But it also says something else there. You see what it says there in verse 5? And they had John as their helper. Who is John? Who's John? This is John Mark. Now, question, question. Did the church at Antioch commission John Mark to go with them? You don't see that. The church was led by the Spirit to commission Saul and Barnabas. And you read in the 13th verse of chapter 13 that John Mark on this mission trip, the very first mission trip in the history of the church, he went home to mama. It didn't work out too good for John Mark on that first trip. Could it be that Barnabas, being the great encourager, he was, he just thought a great idea, went to Saul, said, you know, we need to take young John Mark. He's a fine young man. Let's take him with us. But with those good intentions, John Mark wasn't called. Some of you have been on some mission trips, and you see that some people there, they weren't called by God. They might have been called by their mama or their spouse or somebody in their Sunday school class. They weren't called by God. They didn't do too good. And it was the same for John Mark. He became a good writer. We're thankful. He gave us the gospel to Mark. We're thankful. He came around. He and Saul were later friends, but he didn't make it on that first mission trip. Could it be he was not led by the Holy Spirit? He was led by a man to go. Keep that in mind. Well, as they're going across Cyprus, it says in verse 6, they had gone through the whole island. They're going west now, and they came to Paphos. What's Paphos? Paphos was the capital city of Cyprus. It was the headquarters of the government. It would be like Austin to you. It was the headquarters. And there, there was a proconsul or a governor of Cyprus 
who was appointed by Rome and answered to the Roman Empire. And so as they get there, they begin to encounter spiritual warfare. Look at what it says in verse 6b. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, that's the governor, Sergius Paulus was his name, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for his name is so translated, Elymas, the name means sorcerer, was opposing them and seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, understand this. Listen, are you listening? When you are sent out, whether it's today here in Longview, whether it's across the earth to Southeast Asia, when you're sent out to share the gospel, you're going to encounter spiritual warfare. You just count on it. It's a part of the missionary endeavor. And here we see this aide, this, this uh, guide papa in the cabinet of the governor there. He doesn't want them to share the gospel with the governor of Cyprus because he's filled with the devil. And we see that as this story unfolds. He had two names. Bar-Jesus was his given name, but he was called Elymas because he was a sorcerer. Now, in the pagan world, it was not unusual to have counselors for government leaders like this because they were seeking how to make wise decisions and seeking to understand the future. And the more pagan a culture becomes, the more you're going to have these counselors that are not of God but of the devil. I mean, think about this all the way back to the 80s, folks. In the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan had that assassination attempt on his life, Nancy Reagan became so afraid, she started consulting an astrologist. Why? Because every time her Ronnie was to make a trip as president, she wanted to be sure he wouldn't be harmed. So she went to the astrologist first. It drove the, the, the cabinet and the aides to Reagan crazy. And she was saying, oh, don't, go, don't send him on this trip. And she'd go to the astrologist and have a bad feeling. Well, that was all of the devil. Now, understand her fears and her concern that her husband might be harmed. But still, that was all of the devil. That was not of God. And some of you, even working in corporate culture, will occasionally have the boss bring in a, a new age consultant to help you maximize your effectiveness and your own success. That's just classic paganism. The more you see a culture becoming pagan, the more people turn from God and are looking to sources that they don't even realize is demonic in looking for counsel. And so we see this guy, he's trying to prevent that from happening. But just count on it, when you start getting on the front lines to share the gospel, there's going to be spiritual warfare. You know, I came to Christ at 16 through the ministry of Young Life. And at one of their Christian camps, hearing the gospel is where I began to grow in my faith. I began to have that personal relationship with Christ. I began to realize under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I needed to truly follow Jesus, even though I would have told you I was a Christian but I really wasn't following Christ. And you know, two years later, I went back to that same camp as a counselor. And I'll never forget the night that the cross talk was to occur. That was the gospel was gonna be shared with the students, the high school students there. And all of a sudden there was all kind of tension in the camp. And we all kind of campers that were there, students, we couldn't even find them. Counselors were arguing with one another and I wondered what in the world was going on. And I remember the lead counselor, I asked him, I said, what in the world's happening here? And he, he said, Brian, this is spiritual warfare. And I just, oh, don't give me that. I've been growing in my faith for a couple of years. I'd hear people talk about the devil. I thought, they're just blaming the devil on their own sin. But he said, no, this is spiritual warfare, Brian. 
The gospel is about to be presented tonight. And this is really an indication that God may be up to something good for a lot of students coming to Christ tonight. And the devil's trying to do everything he can to distract us from getting the word out. And sure enough, that night, all kinds of students trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I'll tell you, I began to realize spiritual warfare is very real, especially when you get on the front lines and the good news of Christ is about to be presented. And we see this here. But we read on. Look at how Paul deals with this. Verse 9, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on this man, and he said, you're full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, this is the first time in Scripture that Saul, a Jewish man, by his Jewish name, is called Paul by his Roman name. Why is that? Well, you just saw a little video on Lottie Moon. You study more about her life, you'll see that as she is seeking to take the good news of Christ there in China, she dressed like a Chinese woman. She indulged in the culture of the Chinese. She ate Chinese food. She was seeking to win the right to be heard by accepting those folks in that culture. Well, there's no different for Saul as he took on his Roman name with a calling primarily to Gentiles. He took on even a Gentile name, this this. Jewish aristocrat in his background because he wanted to share with them the gospel of Christ. But he's also very direct in spiritual warfare. And he looks at this Elymas, this bar Jesus. He calls him a, a son of the devil. He calls him out. That had to be exciting. I'd like to have been there when that occurred. And it says, look at what it says, verse 11. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time, and immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now, can you imagine? He calls this man out. He knows what's going on. This is spiritual warfare. And the man is struck blind. And that blindness that he experienced physically, now listen, are you listening? Are you listening? Don't miss this. This blindness that he experienced physically was symbolic of the blindness that he was dealing with spiritually. And Saul, who is now known as Paul by his choice, Saul knows what's that like, what that's like, because on the road to Damascus when he was converted, he lost his sight for about three days. Symbolic of the spiritual darkness he was in when he thought he was doing the work of the Lord. And Jesus made it very clear he was not. It was just the opposite. So he calls this man out and he's struck blind. I think that would get everybody's attention. When Ann and I were on a mission trip to India years ago, Indian pastors locally there had been working for months to get poor folks in these small villages in rural India to come together and to hear from this American speaker. That was me. That was kind of a novelty for them, to have an American who traveled all the way from America to speak to them. That's how they invited them to come. And that day when we showed up, they had, had a, constructed a big tent. There were hundreds and hundreds of people there in India sitting on that dirt floor of that tent, gathered for that special service. And as the service began and worship began, just like you were worshiping the Lord through music a few moments ago, all of a sudden in the middle of that worship, there was a blood-curdling scream, a screeching scream. 
And this woman kind of in the middle of the crowd, just, I mean, it was just like something you would see almost in the movies, a character in the movie. I mean, her body was all stiff, bent out of shape, just eyes, just wild looking, just screaming, blood curtain screaming. Now, one thing about the Indian culture, they have no trouble in believing in evil spirits. I mean, it's such a, the Hinduism and it's all that, no trouble believing in, in evil spirits. So they scattered from this woman, just getting out of that tent as quick as they could. Well, the man who was my interpreter began to pray, and four or five of those Indian pastors went and laid hands on this woman as he was praying. Well, I've never seen anything like that, and I'm sitting on the platform, and I, I stepped off that platform and laid hands on the woman with those Indian pastors. I thought, you know, this might be my only shot in my life at an exorcism. I've never ex- experienced anything like this, so I didn't want to miss out on that. <laughs> and so we were praying for that woman, and all of a sudden she just went limp. And what was something I will never forget is the look in her eyes that had been transformed from wildness to just so at peace, so clear-eyed. And that those Indian pastors acting like this was just something they deal with, they just brought all the people in that tent back around her, and the service continued. And, you know, I don't have a gift in evangelism like a lot of pastors do. I always believe in sharing the gospel and always want people to come to Christ, and that's central to the calling that God has given. I don't have a gift in evangelism like a lot of pastors. I'm more of a pastor teacher. You look at a man like Johnny Hunt who was recently, but he's got an incredible gift in evangelism. It just, just flows out of him. But on that day when the invitation was given, there was over 100 Indians that stood to say they wanted to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. I was just stunned. But do you see what happened there? The devil sought to create a distraction and disturbance. And all the people were naturally afraid because the devil didn't want them to hear the gospel. And yet God was up to something so big that day that God did something that only he could do, not any man. And all those people came to Christ. I was so excited about it. I came back to John's Ferry. I told our deacons, you know, I said, if we could ever have an occasional exorcism around here, we could see a lot of people coming to Christ. Never happened, but I thought, you know, it really would help the ministry a bit. So we see this here with Saul. He calls this man out, and look at what happens after this, y'all. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Well, I guess so. That never happened there. Now think about it. There's just one man that comes to Christ, but he happens to be the most influential man on the island of Cyprus. Now think how God's going to use his life. But he saw that evident spiritual warfare, and then he heard the gospel. What is the gospel? What is it that Paul shared with this proconsul when he had a chance to visit with him? He said, sir, you, this is just a little imagination here, but sir, what you saw was the power of God. You see the power of the evil one trying to disrupt God, but you saw the power of God overruling this situation. And, sir, I know you're the most powerful man on this island, and I know you may be the epitome of success to everybody here, but I have a feeling you're missing something in your heart inside. You're searching for something more, and I have good news. Sir, God loves you so much that in spite of the fact that you're a sinner like I'm a sinner, God sent his son, Jesus, to give his life for us on a Roman cross, to pay the penalty for our sins vicariously on the cross. 
So if we come to our senses and admit we're sinners and need for a savior, need for God's forgiveness, he will forgive us. And not only that, Mr. Governor, but there's a bonus. When you trust Christ, you're not only forgiven of your sins and made right with God because of what Jesus has done, not anything you do, but you're given the gift of eternal life, victory over death. How about that? And the governor trusted Christ. It's a glorious moment in the history of the church on the very first mission trip in the history of the church. Now, what is it we learn in this story in Acts 13? Well, we learn this. Individuals are called, but the church affirms and does the sending. And both are to be involved. The individual and the local church. Individualistic Americans that don't feel they need the church to affirm a calling of God are being unbiblical. It is both. Secondly, they were sent out in teams. Saul and Barnabas were sent out together. And y'all, they got this from Jesus. When Jesus sent out the early disciples, he sent them out two by two. Why? Because when you're sent out and you have to engage in things like spiritual warfare and you face discouragement, you face rejection, you face difficulty, you need the encouragement of others. They were sent out in teams. You know, before I was called to ministry, I was in the business world a few years after I finished college. I was in sales with a chemical company. I worked straight commission. And every Monday morning, I would get the Monday morning sweats. I had no idea where my income was going to come from that week. I had the Monday morning sweats. It would get you out of bed, I promise you. But I was so glad that there was another man with the company that lived there in Augusta. Oh, I shouldn't have mentioned Augusta. Some of you men, I've lost you now. Come, stay with me, stay with me. You'll see Augusta later today. Hold on, you'll see enough. But I was in sales there in Augusta. And every Monday morning, I would meet with this other man that was with the company. And we would just gulp down cups of coffee to get fortified, to go out and be turned down and rejected 90% of the time. I mean, it was, it was, I just was so thankful for that guy to this day. I'm thankful for that man because Jesus knew he sent out his disciples two by two because it's going to be tough out there. You're going to face hardships. You need somebody to encourage you, to be on the team with you. But not only that, thirdly, what we learn is that they were willing to be sent into the unknown on faith. They didn't know what they were going to face. I don't know about you, but I, I'm in, I just I love the stories of pioneers, explorers. Think about Christopher Columbus, thought he was going west to see another entry to India and winds up discovering a continent he didn't even know existed. Boy, those, that's incredible courage. If you've ever studied the stories of Lewis and Clark, read Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage. Man, it's one of the greatest books I've ever read. I can't get over the courage of those men. They did not know what they were going to face when they began to explore America. Can you imagine some of you probably flown to Colorado Springs? Texans like to go to Colorado. That's a, that's a good vacation point for Texans. And if you've ever flown into Colorado Springs after flying over all those kind of flat-looking plains in Nebraska, Kansas, and western, or, uh, western side of Colorado, then all of a sudden you get in Colorado Springs and you get off your plane, and there are the Rocky Mountains just shooting up out of the flat earth. It's an incredible sight. Can you imagine what Lewis and Clark thought? Oh, my goodness. How are we going to get through there? But they had the courage to step out. And you know, when you and I step out on a mission trip, whether it's this afternoon here in Longview, whether it's going 
to North Asia, halfway around the world. You're venturing out of your comfort zone into the unknown where you have to go in faith and trust in God. And what an adventure. How exciting that is. That's what we see as the church at Antioch was sending them out. But that's not all. When you go out, just know you're going to face spiritual warfare. When you're, going to seek to, when you're seeking to share the gospel, you're going to face spiritual warfare and expect it. Don't be afraid of it. I know the devil is a lot smarter and stronger than every person in this room. But he ain't stronger and smarter than Jesus. And understand this. If your trust is in Jesus, the word of God says, greater is he who is in you than he, the devil in this world. Hold on to that. Jesus told his disciples the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Hold on to that. Expect spiritual warfare. It's usually a sign that God is up to something good and some people are going to come to Christ. So stay focused on the mission. Don't be distracted by the evil one. Get the gospel out there and see the Lord do his work. And fifth, the church at Antioch, a great example for every church. They prayed and fasted. They sought the will of God. They sought to follow the will of God in carrying out Christ's great commission. They sent out two of their best, two of their best, to venture into the unknown. And look at the impact of this very day of what occurred there at Antioch. They're an example for Mobley. They're an example for any church on the face of the earth in what God has called us to do. So question, how about you? Are you willing? Are you willing to do what God is leading you to do? It begins with giving, because Jesus says in his great Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What he's saying is as we give, as we spend, then God gets a hold of our heart. We're giving you a chance to do that. December 6th, a special birthday gift for Jesus. Have you prayed about what God is leading you to do? Now, this is not in place of your tithes and offerings, not in place of your regular gifts. This is a sacrificial gift, an over and above gift to start out the Christmas season with the birthday gift of Jesus. It is his birthday, you know. Very often, he's the only one that gets no gifts. How wonderful it is in a mission-minded church like this that you're having a special one-day offering. Have you prayed about it? Ann and I have prayed about our gift that day over and above our regular tithes and offerings. And here's what God is leading us to do. Every year, we have a budget that encompasses 16 people at Christmas. Ann's mom, our three sons, their three wives, our seven grandchildren, 16 total people, including Ann and me. And what we're going to do this year in this special gift to Jesus here at Marbley is we're going to match the total we spend on all our Christmas gifts in this one-day offering. What about you? What is God leading you to do? And is God leading some of you to go, to be sent? In 2021, we are hoping COVID will begin to pass and churches can begin to send again. Oh, we're hoping. We're hoping it's going to pass. Everybody here is sure hoping it. But are you willing to be sent and to go? For some of you, it can begin this very afternoon. 
being sent out in Longview because missions is local, it is global. What is God leading you to do? Question, question. If God can use a former religious terrorist who was hell-bent on destroying the church, what's your excuse? What's your excuse for not joining in what God is calling the church of Jesus Christ to do and fulfilling Christ's great commission? May Marbley be a great commission Baptist church that is very much like the church at Antioch. Oh, Lord, may it be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this example of the church at Antioch. We thank you for the example of Saul and Barnabas. We thank you for this church being an ascending church. And we thank you, Father, that Moberly is a mission-minded church, is a ascending church, is a church that supports church plants, a church that has a vision for its local mission field in the Longview area, nationally in missions and globally in missions. Father, I pray for each person here to be praying about what you're calling them to give in a sacrificial gift to Jesus, a birthday gift for Jesus on December 6th. Help us to know, Father. Father, I pray for those that you're going to be sending out in 2021. I pray for those who will be sent out today with the love of Jesus. Oh, Lord, may all who are sent out remember the ultimate love of Jesus is what you've done for us on the cross. It is sharing the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, may you use this church in a greater way than this church has ever imagined before. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, please fill each follower of Christ today with your spirit to be your people. And Holy Spirit, may you convict those who are not genuine followers of Christ that today is the time to respond to the gospel, to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus has done all that needs to be done for us to be forgiven by you and made right with you and to receive eternal life. Father, for those who know under the conviction of the Holy Spirit they need to get right with you, may this be the day that they do. Oh, Lord, that's our prayer. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.